we would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is produced, the Wajak Noongar people, and pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hello Courtney, we're back after a little bit of a break from recording. Yeah, how are you going? Yeah, very well. How about yourself? Not too bad, just slowly plodding along, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, oh, that's good. Yeah, yeah, it seems like everyone everyone's kind of plans are tentative at the, at the moment in Perth. You know, from week to mm. week things change. You know, there's people isolating all the time and we've mm-hmm, got a, mm-hmm. a wave crashing through at the moment. So yeah, yeah, I've heard lots of places only have like half, 50% staff and places have to close and all that kind of stuff. I think uh, there was... Uh, I've I've had the the dreaded virus myself, and during that time, four of my friends had it at the same time. So we all had a, like a little COVID chat going um, to see how isolation was. But yeah, it's um been an interesting time. Yeah, dare I ask how it how it went for you? Oh, um, uh, yeah, it, it was okay. Um, I was one of the unfortunate ones where I got some pretty bad symptoms, so I was kind of out for the whole seven days. Um, but you know, I survived. I'm here. We're all good. <laughs> mm, okay, so you're pretty well recovered now. Yeah, yeah. I've had some kind of like lingering cough and um, kind of lung issues. So playing my weekly basketball games is uh, a lot tougher now. Um, but yeah, otherwise, all okay. Okay. All right. Well, I'm glad yeah. you came through it. I've not been. <laughs> I've not been subject to it yet. So don't get it. Don't recommend. Yeah, hopefully that continues. Um, Yeah, so today, uh, this week's um, guest is uh, Professor Megan Williams from University of Technology, Sydney. Yeah, she's a a very special guest. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So I think, I'm not sure whether we've actually discussed this, Craig, but I was thinking that um, this would be a great episode to uh, have as a celebration of um, NAIDOC week. so Megan is an Indigenous professor who's had a very, very interesting life um, in and outside of research. Mm. Yes, yeah, she, she has um, extensive history working in communities and got involved with sort of justice and health research involving uh, Indigenous children and they're not now Indigenous adults as well and mm. is, a, is really an expert uh, on Indigenous culture and how that intersects with justice-related issues. Uh, and as you'll hear in the, the podcast, in the chat we have with her, um, she she actually gets um, tapped on the shoulder to give evidence at things like coronial inquests, you know, when they unfortunately arise, um, to provide some of that perspective that non-Indigenous people don't, you know, don't have. Yeah, so she's a really, really interesting and fascinating person to talk to. Uh, so we hope you enjoy the conversation that we have. Yeah, it's excellent. So, uh, if you're happy, we might as well get started, huh? Yeah, ready to start. Yeah, yeah excellent. All right. Well, it gives me great pleasure to welcome Professor Megan Williams to the podcast. Hello, Megan. Yiridumarun, g'day, in uh, Wiradjuri language, yeah, Megan Williams, coming to yeah. you from Gadigal land today. Okay, 
So we're, we're coming from Wajak Nunga land today. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, do, do you want to start with that, Megan, your your heritage there? Where, whereabouts are you from? Uh, I'm not too familiar with Wiradjuri uh, and where it is, but yeah, do you want to fill us in? Yeah, sure. Yeah, that uh, my Williams surnames, the Aboriginal family surname that was applied to um, one of our ancestors, obviously post-colonisation and our family ties are to Mudgee in central New South Wales and also um, northeast Tasmania. Mm. And so that William surname's, yeah, sort of persisted since then and there's, yeah, lots of Williams's northeast Wiradjuri country. So um, that's on my dad's side and my mum's side um, is from England. And interestingly, both of them have World War I um, engagement and can really see the differential treatment between the black and the white families and the impact across generations. And, and then also kind of the meeting point that ends up being me and one mm. of my old work projects was with the Australian Defence Force, but with all the young Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander recruits doing evaluation. And there was a very fancy formal dining in night and it was the same room that my great-grandfather on the white side, English side, had hosted events with the same cutlery and Mm. crockery and tableware. And there I was with the room full of black fellas. <laughs> that's really full circle. Very isn't it? cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's fantastic. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Excellent. Well, it's great to have you on the podcast and um, yeah, we're both really looking forward to this chat um, because we haven't had any Indigenous researchers on yet. We've, we've talked about Indigenous focused projects, but haven't been able to speak to any Indigenous researchers driving those projects yet. So it's really great to have you on. Um, did you just want to, uh, let people know a little bit about yourself, your training and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I, um, you know, I was in grade 12 when the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody recommendations were handed down and I went to a really large sporting high school um, and my sport is roller skating, so that was not very not helpful amazing. at that school. <laughs> and um, I was in the debating team. There were about five of us with one blazer jacket that we shared and um, and I was in the modern history class in senior high school and that um, teacher's partner was Indigenous um, to the South Pacific and a very significant family. So he was always very open to talking about Indigenous people's rights and issues and he shared and helped us work through the Royal Commission and it was pretty profound as a, um, you know, 16-year-old. And I, I knew that family had gone to prison because uh, my earliest memories are visiting um, prisons and hospitals. And, but I never thought that that would happen, deaths in custody would continue to occur after the Royal Commission. And... Um, I then sought to work in and among Aboriginal people and especially um, drug and alcohol residential rehabs. We had one near where I worked, uh, near where I lived. And also I just love the idea of health promotion 
but among people who didn't access mainstream health services and the area I lived in, I had family members that didn't even access uh, Aboriginal health services. And partly that's because of, you know, drugs and alcohol and other extreme things and also, yeah, history of some people as perpetrators of violence that mean, you know, it's very difficult for them to access mainstream services. So I was sort of, uh, yeah, well, in that mix. And also there were, it was a great drag queen scene and I was kind of like a sort of daughter to a couple <laughs> of the drag queens and um, working with them, we set up some of the first needle and syringe programs or and got that, a network of those happening in that area. And that led me to doing some workshops among people in prison and I had to do, yeah, street outreach. And one day my boss said to me, um, I've got a surprise for you. And I said, oh, not another nightclub <laughs> I have to go to for night moves in the dark, it was called. And I hated it. You know, I'm pretty nerdy. And he said, no, um, it's a research training course. Yeah, we think you are one of the biggest nerds we've ever met and you'll be much better at doing evaluation of services. <laughs> <laughs> so, because I was still only about 18 and 19 then, 19, yeah. So I'd been um, working away at a social science undergrad when I got to go to this research training course and it was, I was one of the only English as a first language speakers and there were people from all around the South Pacific. So it was absolutely fabulous beginning to research because it was community-driven styles of research. And around that time too, this is the early to mid-90s, the first lot of Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander health research guidelines were released by the National Health and Medical Research Council. So that sort of connected really well and then connected with my social science degree um, and in that I took a focus on youth justice issues but health and well-being of young people in the justice system and so uh, but I worked in community sector kind of full-time for about 10 years and then slowly started doing evaluations that were sort of part-time at a uni or had co-location or something like that before 2007 when I became a full-time level A academic mm -hmm. and yeah ever since then just level A level B level C <laughs> yeah <laughs> so on and ranks. so on but I've liked yeah. the structure because you know produce two articles a year and get this much money mm -hmm. um, I think it has kept me very focused and I've been very focused on research right at that crossroads of justice and health too and occasionally drawn into other areas but not really um and but those are big fields as well with social determinants of health social emotional well-being mm. the stats the program evaluations so there's yeah so much scope but I think research has been it's really met so much of my um, own interests and skills with well storytelling first and foremost I identify as a writer as well m mostly and and then also 
that translation of research into action. And so for me, I really appreciated the chance to be involved in coronial inquiries or the inquests into deaths as well. So that original um, research project that you did, who was that done by? Um, It was the Gold Coast AIDS and Injectors Newsline Incorporated. So Mm -hmm. it's pretty funny old outdated name. (laughs) And um, so they... It was mainly for Indigenous and Pacific Islanders? Or like what no, was the kind of it was of it? Um, that one of my first ones was Women with Hep C, actually, and it was not long after uh, non-A, non-B became called Hep C and it was a needs mm-hmm. assessment of women. Yeah, and I think we always saw about a quarter of the people who came to gain that service were Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander mm-hmm. people. So always involved in that and that was a great health promotion organization and like that needs assessment and then real community development referral to other services involvement in um, policy and in data collection so that was where I first got experience in helping shape data collections that were going to happen nationally too Mm. as well as um, program evaluation from there and then my colleague at a similar organisation in Brisbane received research funding and hired me to help run that. So I'll always remember him. Um, yeah, he's passed away now. And and it, we used a pyramid selling approach to get data collection done among young in, young injecting drug users. Um, nice. We had yeah, peer, um, peer researchers that we trained and they helped design all of the data collection materials and the time frame. And, uh, and they then, for every survey they got completed, they would get money. And for every um, person they did sort of snowballing with, mm. they would get paid as well, as well as a wage. So, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, we very quickly got 100 surveys. That's what we were aiming for. We got a letter of complaint from someone who'd written to the health department saying, Mm -hmm. how do we know these drug users weren't just making up the surveys? So we had to... That's how you know it's a good data collection if you get complaints. (laughs) Yeah. So we had to prove that they were all in different pen and we had our coding and we had our... And the peer researchers were so offended because they (laughs) took it so seriously. It was about their health and wellbeing of their cohort. So that was a kind of good story to tell as well. It was all cleared by a human research ethics committee. I mean, that committee really pushed back on the idea of peer researchers. And I'll always remember one of the reviewers' comments were, how how can we prove we're not just putting foxes in the hen house to um, set older drug users among younger ones to recruit them into selling drugs for them just like this is a health promotion project i'm pretty sure they are seeking to not um be infected with highly transmissible diseases (laughs) so it was super fun all of that drama as well
it's interesting to hear you talk about Hep C because obviously being involved in prison research today myself, the landscape's really changed since the new drugs have become available. Um, so you were dealing with it in the days where it, the treatments weren't as effective and didn't work for everybody. And, you know, for some people it could end up being a death sentence or, or really affect their quality of life. Hey? Uh, it's so profound, those changes. I haven't been able to keep up because that, that was back in the day of interferon and it was known as being debilitating and the, mm. the life preparation people needed and the scaffolding for months to and people choosing not to get treated because it was just such a regime. Mm. And then slowly, slowly other types started coming. But really what we were also dealing with was people with HIV and AIDS and mm-hmm. hep C and then really poor mental health and people, yeah, died. I nursed a few people um, and witnessed other people pass away and and our own boss, my wonderful boss, the one who sent me to that research training course, yeah, he's mm. passed away from HIV mm. as well. So, right. yeah, I think yeah. I do think about, about um, Colin and Alex and then mm-hmm. one other colleague as well who was planning a PhD while I s- shared an office with her. Um, mm-hmm. I never thought I would do a PhD and then I, we were just always whiteboarding hers and the structure and methods. And she said, why don't you do one? And I had little kids at the time. I thought, oh, it's probably not very practical. But um, I did enrol just part-time. And I enrolled in something. I, my topic was what I thought was going to be really enriching for me rather than draining. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but unfortunately... Um, Toward the end of my PhD, she passed away as well. So that was, yeah, I think why it's all, yeah, got such personal meaning too, that things that I've been gifted with to carry on. Mm. That would have been really tough. Yeah. Was your PhD a similar topic as your colleagues? Um, In some ways um, with hers. But, no, really mine was... um, well, it was partly to win an argument with my own grandfather about pointing out that some <laughs> Aboriginal families treat their members much better than ours when they get out of prison. <laughs> That's the best kind of PhD when you can win an argument. Yeah. So um, anyway, I didn't win that argument, never won that one. <laughs> and, yeah, so Pops passed away as well. So, um, But, yeah, so I just started out with 12 um, in-depth interviews with people who'd gotten out of prison and what types of supports they accessed and what would have worked for them. And mm-hmm. then that led me to, because I was collaborating with a senior Aboriginal woman, she's passed away as well, actually. Um, yeah, she sort of encouraged me to write an application that was deliberately open-ended in terms of exactly what the data collection was going to be which is pretty savvy as well to get into a PhD without even exactly knowing. She was awesome. (laughs) And so the next lot of interviews were with service providers about all of the roles they play in what we call through care. Back then it's not, through care is not sort of used as much now, I don't think. So through care. And then 
that analysis of that data led to me seeing the multiple roles that Aboriginal people have. And that resonated with me as well, because um, I have multiple roles in relation to prison too. And so then I did really deep um, interviews about the mixed roles too. And so even for myself doing that PhD, you know, as a PhD student, I was a visiting a prison quite a lot because one of my cousins was there and he's one of my favourite um, people. And so I was visiting, I was doing some legal advocacy for him. I was involved in national data collections, you know, as part of work um, on research projects, governance of community-based organisations who do justice and health work and, and so on. So that took me right back to what I'd studied in undergrad um, in organisational studies and man- organisational management, um, our mm-hmm. frames of reference, and that professionals are to have a, their personal frame of reference, professional and organisational. And we were told, so when you step in the door of the organisation, you leave your personal one behind and you operate from your professional and your organisational dimensions but in Aboriginal ways you don't you actually bring your whole self to it and I then explored how to reduce how Aboriginal people reduce risks associated with that and all the strategies they had to mitigate risks including criticisms from others that were too involved personally I've had that said to me today actually and yesterday that same thing was said um and so, but I think we have really great strategies to make sure that we still stay well in among that. And yes, there's huge exposure to trauma, but actually some of the most traumatic things are still when we just have the least power in a situation. I can be exposed to all types of um you know, well, working on the inquest of Veronica Nelson and having to work through both the transcripts and the audio of her 40 or more uses of the intercom pleading for help, including hearing the last words she ever said in which she was asking for help and hearing in her voice how distressed she was and how unwell she was. So that, I don't mind actually. I prefer Mm. to be able to hear all of that material, including in research, because it's nothing compared to being told, no, we can't participate in decision-making that affects us, or no, we can't have our rights progressed by a committee because these other issues are in the way, or no, we can't have at the moment on, 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 an, on a job, I've got clearly inequitable access to the money. All the other mm-hmm. topic areas get a certain proportion and I've got to tuck in under a topic. I'm not, mm. Aboriginal health isn't a topic on its own that gets the proportionate amount of money. And the reason we're told that is because we're a minority population, even though we're overrepresented in the issue at hand. And so that weighting is inequitable. Yeah, so that hurts way more. That's way more stressful. 
And yeah. so how do you tackle those problems in research? Like what, what's your process for kind of identifying that and then doing something about it? Yeah, well, number one is like mind your manners first. Yep. <laughs> Think before you speak and don't make anything worse first. Yeah, mm-hmm. I've definitely had a few moments, um, you know, where I, sh- I should have been more restrained, not for a little while. And one was actually with um, with a close colleague, Craig. I, I know you know him. Um, you Stuart. know, where many years ago, yeah, we've mm. we've had some tense times, but we've had a great mm. commitment to working things through with so much respect that comes from that. So yeah. nothing's unmendable, um, but I think knowing my way around human research ethics guidelines or knowing whatever the guidelines are that scaffold that thing at that time so that then there's it's quite a logical thing to say, well, here's our commitment on paper, here's the national policy framework, here's the state policy framework, here's the ethics guidelines, and here's our process and how it doesn't sort of match that, and here's an option. and that come with a solution rather than a problem as well. So you have to do a little bit of homework. But as a chairperson of the Justice and Health Forensic Mental Health Network Human Research Ethics Committee here in New South Wales, we've been all about trying to front-end researchers and provide them with as clear information as possible to inform how they might write a ethics application. And you'd think that that ought to occur but it's quite surprising uh, and it's tricky to work out exactly what research applicants are going to need and you mustn't assume that they all come informed from their research institutions or universities or from their funding applications either and then of course there's time and skill issues that are thrown in that mix too and people often working to deadlines with ethics applications but we've found just using the website and explaining things in lay language has been excellent and we've been really fortunate to have on our ethics committee to have actively brought in people with writing um, expertise so we have two professional writers on our ethics committee and so one of them's very skilled in research and ethics committee members are very diverse. They don't have to be all researchers. Um, and because mm. people in prison have a formal education of about grade nine, it's essential that any research materials are clearly uh, able to be understood by someone, not only with the grade nine education, but in that powerless context to where decision making is very challenging as well. So that, yeah, sort of clear language and I'm about to rotate off after four years and that time's just flown so I'd really encourage anyone to be involved in a human research ethics committee you just learn so many skills plus the networks plus being exposed to the bigger network of ethics committees as well just helps yeah learn so much from that Mm. and then learn yeah running meetings and yeah. 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 Okay. So I believe you, um, there's a bit of a tongue in cheek acknowledgement um, at some of those maybe more tense conversations you've had in the past in your Twitter handle. Oh, is there? 
what's do you want to share? Because I, I think I'm, I've seen you on Twitter before. And what's what's your Twitter Twitter name? Oh, my Twitter name's Meg Bastard, and yeah. that's come from a research translation role that I've had, actually, and that feature film called Mad Bastards. Do you know that film? And actually, it was shot in WA. And um, I got involved in that through uh, my dear colleague, Jack Borman from Nibbambar Spirit Healing. Uh, And he was approached by Dr. Mark Wenatong, who's one of our first Aboriginal medical officers and um, a real leader in the field of men's health. Uh, Dr. Mark was approached by the filmmaker to put together a community outreach kit to go with the film. The film had been recently released. And so uh, Dr. Mark and Jack invited me and a couple of others. And it was right when I moved from Brisbane to Sydney and I moved into the same neighbourhood as the filmmaker. So we were able to get together to collaborate really closely on this community outreach kit. And I was still doing my PhD at the time, but it meant that things like my literature reviews were able to be transformed into, you know, the the rationale and the front end of the community kit. And then all the lots of quotes of elders and other parts of my PhD sort of got woven in and pushed me in the my understanding of my own PhD as well. And we trialled the kit and we've um, ended up calling it being the best you can be. We also fed it back to the producers of the film who included the Pigram brothers. Hmm. Yeah. So famous, famous music. Yeah, family that's here. right. I think and they're from WA. WA, they? well, yeah. 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 So they um the film was shot up around Wyndham and yeah, a bit in the Kimberley. And so when we sort of handed over our work, including to the Pigrams. Um, we were given some merchandise and ended up with several T-shirts with just big words, mad bastards on the front in the lettering <laughs> from the film. <clears throat> and as you, you know, yeah, I can talk. And and I, the film, you know, I've seen it 29 times and Jack's way more than that um, and often will use quotes from the film when we talk to each other or you know we Mm. just muck around and someone said oh you need a t-shirt that says meg bastard you know you're such (laughs) you're such a mad bastard you know and so that's yeah that's 10 years i've had that it's my nickname or just mb like yeah Yeah. just get called mb so it was sort of being a bit facetious about being you know out my own story of family breakdown but I have a wonderful <laughs> relationship with my dad mm-hmm. um, now. Yeah, yeah okay. after yeah, many serious issues there. So, and so the Meg bastard, and she's but she's a bit of that one to me because I'm quite shy. It's helped me to name parts of myself. Um, and so the Ma- <clears throat> Meg bastard, she is the one that can come out swinging a bit more. Mm-hmm. And that can say those clear things like on Twitter, you have to be concise. But also, yeah, I've also got a real a sort of sweet Sister Megan Mary, you know, really sweet. And um, that, yeah. that part of me, and I'm okay with being different. It's part of being, 
having a black family and a white family and the identity clashes and people's confusion when they relate to me. I pick up on that as well. And I've got to be Mm -hmm. really clear about how I'm going to respond and that I'm not reactive to their funniness with me Mm -hmm. too. But it's all sort of part of having a job as a researcher too where I'm often not talking about me and my own stuff. I'm much better at advocating for others than I am for Mm -hmm. myself, which I know I'll have to address in the coming years, but you can only do what you can only do as well. Do you know that I found that being at Veronica Nelson's inquest, I felt very strong. I felt like I could lead I resisted at any point. I didn't believe that our human rights were understood or where there was issues about um, lack of cultural safety. You know, I just continued to push back constantly when I didn't feel that alignment. And, yeah, I think that's, Mm. yeah, just takes yeah. yeah time and experience I think as well you know this is 27 years or something for me being in this sort of mode and context and sometimes I think I should have done a lot more I should have this or I should have that yeah it sounds like you've learned a lot on the way not just in terms of knowledge but also you know approaches to, to getting things done and you know, sometimes all of us go through things that we're passionate about and that make us feel angry or happy or sad or, you know, you know, really motivated. Um, but some, yeah, and sometimes our first response, like you were saying, they may not be the most helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, and so do, do you have people that you bounce things off before you get to the stage where you're going to make a, a, like an official submission or, or talk to someone, you know, in a position of influence? Yeah, I was just thinking that, Craig. I was just <laughs> thinking I would not be able to sort of get through some of these things without particular people. Yeah, definitely. Um, Mm. And we, a couple of us operate with what we call the Murumari Way. And Murumari was our Indigenous health unit that was at UNSW. And they were going five years before I joined them. and, um, And I was with them five years. And Murumari's not essentially together at UNSW now, but because we had such a bond with our elder in residence there, Arnie Ali Golding, and she used to frame Murumari as our watering hole and that we knew we belonged to Murumari and we used Murumari to come back to when we needed that nurturing or watering. And it was always a safe space for us that was always there and so those colleagues that's um professor lisa jackson pulver she's a deputy vice chancellor at university of sydney and she's Wiradjuri. and then sally fitzpatrick who has she had a long history with antar including when they arranged the bridge walk in sydney in the year 2000 and she belongs to a large Aboriginal Walpuri family, um, not Aboriginal herself, but her daughter is and her extended family are. So 
yeah, that's really helpful, the blended identity. And also um, Professor Melissa Haswell, who's just got exceptional research skills and um, has really sort of helped push my limits and experience on the quality of my research. And Melissa got me involved in the Aboriginal Family Wellbeing Program. And it has about 40 or more peer-reviewed publications that go with it and the growth and empowerment measure, which has had a psychometric validation, one of the only tools, social emotional wellbeing tools developed by Aboriginal people and other colleagues on the Indigenous Mental Health Intervention Project with Queensland Forensic Mental Health Network and Brisbane Youth Detention Centre are working on a youth gem, youth growth and empowerment measure. So see all these multiple connections that just happen over years that kind of build such a strong support base and to see the continuation of work across mobs and across country as well, it's just so affirming. So, yeah, Melissa and the Aboriginal Family Wellbeing Program. So that's a multi-stage, multi-level empowerment program. And that's really firmed in my mind a matrix of whenever I, say, design a project or do data analysis or guide others, always looking through the family wellbeing lens, which is, you know, that empowerment at individual, family, community, service and societal levels need to all simultaneously occur and they all affect all those levels affect each other so that's that socio-ecological model too but that matches to that aboriginal definition of health so it's a bit of a matrix then if we look across the lifespan and the diversity of our mobs it's like having an instant um, data analysis tool in one's mind Mm. that's really cool um it sounds like you have lots of fingers in lots of different pies that all relate to Indigenous health and evaluation, all that kind of stuff. Um, what's the the main thing you're currently working on now? What's your main project, your main uh, focus? Yeah, my my current role is divided between um, over, overseeing and contributing to curriculum and content in tertiary education curriculum about Indigenous health and wellbeing. So I don't often remember or say that that's what I work on, but I probably (laughs) contribute a a good solid day to day and a half a week to tertiary education. And I know have for 15 years. And I am committed to that because working, say, on Veronica Nelson's coronial inquest, the errors and the gaps in that health workforce's um, makeup contributed to her death. Yeah, and so it's a no-brainer to think if we can at least um, loosen the foundations of the biased Western perspective of health among students, even if we can't get them to the point of having skilled behaviours when they leave uni, if we can just plant that shadow of doubt that they don't know how to do health business from an Aboriginal perspective and they need to partner. So, I, and I think we can achieve that across the, the few hundred subjects in health at UTS. So that's really, I highly value that work, even though, as I said, I see myself as a writer, you know. So um, 
So in my research and writing time, I work on the National Palliative Care in Prison Project and sort of just the beginnings of that. And on that, the I Am Hip Youth, that Indigenous Mental Health Intervention Project in Queensland, that's youth detention, updating a model of care to include social and emotional well-being. But it's got many players and I'm sort of just a guiding hand there. And then Bangamalana. Bangamalana means to share in Wiradjuri. And it's a research translation project actively translating um, half a dozen existing research reports and project data into what does that mean for the shape of the workforce and their skills in prisons. Rather than collecting new data from Aboriginal people about what do you need, mm-hmm. where even, even though a lot of that old data's got um, issues, it's enough for us to query about what it means for health workforce and I want to push that into HR as well what does that mean for recruitment career progression supervision of staff and working backwards from the Australian Health Practitioner Regulation Authority's definition of cultural safety Mm. and um, some of those workforces that are accredited as well and need to achieve cultural safety Mm. Um, and at the moment I'm finishing up a health sociology review special issue on Indigenous knowledges um, and Mm -hmm. working with Ted Knopf's Foundation Resi Rehab on some qualitative data analysis and writing as well as um, one more um, court report too. Yeah, Yeah. Mm. I've I've actually um, been out I used to live in Sydney and mm-hmm. I think the Ted Noss Foundation was behind the street university out in Liverpool, if I'm yeah. not mistaken. And I went out there and it was they were running like a hip-hop music school or something like that. Back, that's going back a few years now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's just an aside. Yeah. Um, I was just wondering if – I'm not sure how much you're allowed to talk about the coronial inquest that you've just participated in, mm-hmm. but what, what were the sort of more specific kind of failings and issues that you think contributed to, to that death? Well, it did begin with police custody issues um, and inadequate assessment then of her health status at the time. Also issues to do with the bail laws where she was remanded in custody for something that she wouldn't have received a custodial sentence for, um, but because it was a breach, then... um, she had to be remanded, but also she represented her, herself in court and fell through the net. And um, and just before we go on, just yeah. so everyone's on the same page, uh, we should probably give a brief introduction as to what this inquest is actually about and, and who yeah. it involves as well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah, Miss Veronica Nelson, uh, Aboriginal woman, yeah, died in custody. And in uh, Dame Billis... Frost Centre in Victoria with the health services provided by a private company called Correct Care predominantly. And her inquest um, was live streamed from court and there's a Twitter live stream thread at 
Dajiao Foundation, Dajua, which is that at symbol D-H-A-D-J-O-W-A. Mm-hmm. So it is so much content there and it is yeah. hard for me to keep it all in my head. So I'll <laughs> do my best. Yeah, so issues with police yeah. custody and then um, going into the Dean Phyllis Frost Centre, went through medical assessment, which in my opinion wasn't informed by cultural safety or um, quality enough for an Aboriginal person and it wasn't aligned with policies at the time. And she was just extremely unwell and and vomiting, um, vomited extensively for a few days in the end. And she was immediately with, um, had to go into opiate withdrawal, wasn't offered opiate maintenance Mm, and and was only weighing maybe about 40 kilograms anyway at the time. Um, Couldn't keep fluids down. That's really obvious. Yeah, so um, cause of death, yes, related to the opiate withdrawal and a pre-existing undiagnosed condition called Wilkie syndrome, which is a gastric um, obstruction. And assessment could have picked that up because of the nature of her vomiting and how extensive it was. Um, But also there were several points at which care should have been escalated, whether to more senior staff or whether ambulatory care should have been involved and it's all that all the issues are about people in prison have the right to the same level of health care as people in the community and prisons are part of our community they're not separate mm-hmm. you don't um, come back from prison to the community you know they're just settings within our community and so the care can be more continuous between hospitals and prisons and other jurisdictions around the world show that and there's good evidence about the effectiveness of inreach into prisons to provide care. The Royal Commission says that where Aboriginal people are overrepresented in prison, Aboriginal health services, if they're operating in the local area, should operate the prison health service. (laughs) And if there are private provider models for health care, why can't there be Aboriginal community-controlled options? That's not even an argument. Yeah, Yeah, it makes sense logically for things like that to happen. Um, You've you've mentioned this phrase a a couple of times, cultural safety. What would that entail? Yeah, it is able to really only be determined and evaluated by an Aboriginal person Mm -hmm. and it's, um, it's that level of comfort they have in a setting that we have in a setting where our Aboriginal identity and needs and perception of health aren't challenged or made invisible, mm. but are actually also affirmed with strategies that help us achieve health in the ways that we understand need to be achieved. So that. Um, cultural safety is kind of one dimension and we often hear cultural competence and then there's also cultural awareness and they're different things as well too. So um, I think 
people often lack basic cultural awareness, you know, about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures. Then there's that other phrase, cultural load, and that we're expected, Aboriginal people are expected to be the educators of non-Indigenous people. And I do find, you know, genuinely people are worried. They don't want to Google Aboriginal (laughs) culture and Mm -hmm. learn the wrong things. They want to ask people like me, what should they learn and how? But then again, you can also just Google it and (laughs) use a bit of discernment about how to assess the quality of information online. Like, is it written by an Aboriginal person or... I would just say anything that's by an Aboriginal community controlled organisation, it's going to have a diverse board and it's not representing one profit-making Aboriginal person's view. There's a difference there. So community controlled organisations will have diversity of opinion and information available. And um, so I, I really encourage people to access the Healing Foundation website Um, and also National Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation website and uh, the material they've put out recently by Equity Economics. Oh, it's just outstanding. I think Mm. that's where I want to go as a researcher. Um, And I did enrol in a post-grad certificate in economics. Um, But there was nothing about Aboriginal issues whatsoever or Indigenous peoples or any anything about inequity or alternative economies so I don't know if I'll yeah I'd like to be able to go down that path at some stage sounds like a really interesting area um yeah I don't think I've come across anything to do with indigenous health um and economics um who knows Mm, I know (laughs) there's such a great whole subject or something on that because there's so much especially drivers of inequity that includes mm. poverty and exclusion from decision-making. Mm. It's not just about Indigenous peoples have alternative economies. That's one facet of it, but it's also about drivers of, of um, inequity. And, you know, there's a really sort of simple phrase that um, racial inequity is a driver of health inequity. So if we <laughs> sort of unpack that, it could be very helpful. But there's very little research that does unpack processes of racial inequity or racism yeah and I think that yeah, is definitely needed in the future mm. yeah do, but. do you find that there's there's big differences across the country in terms of the Aboriginal communities and and their what their priorities are and what what they want to achieve like speaking to different language groups and that sort of thing yeah in some ways in some ways there's a really strong bond, common experience of colonisation and colonialism, racism, exclusion. So, yeah, they're really important um, commonalities and bonds, but also great diversity. I think the most pressing thing is understanding who's the, where does power lie in each local area in Aboriginal community? And that's why I, as an Aboriginal person, wouldn't kind of come into Noongar country and say, I'm going to do this. Mm-hmm. Although sometimes national projects do set us up that way, unfortunately. Mm. Yeah, the 
but that seems like a it's like a lack of understanding about the different cultural groups across Australia. Yeah, their governance, the governance yeah. differs greatly and who the leaders are, of course, is it's up, that's local, that's at that local level mm. and you just can't tell from the outside who they are or how they really operate. So, yeah, that's that. You just never apply, especially decision-making processes from one mob to another. Hi, we hope you're enjoying this episode. If you have a minute and enjoy the conversations we bring you, it'd be great if you could go to wherever you get your podcasts and give us a quick rating and review. Not only do we love to get your feedback, but it also helps other people to find us. Thank you. And now back to the show. And so uh, I guess that sort of segues nicely into, um, from a national point of view, obviously there are strategies discussed and policies put in place and that sort of thing. So what, what are some of the national strategies um, that you're aware of or involved in developing and working on, um, you know, to do with cultural safety and evaluation with respect to Aboriginal and uh, Indigenous people? Yeah, that um, the National Palliative Care in Prison Project, it is set up to develop a national framework about palliative care and it would be one of the only or for one of the first national strategies to do with prison health because prisons are run by the jurisdictions and so are the prison health services and they vary so much between them and that changes all the time as well within jurisdictions. And so actually that's a big gap. We don't have a national picture of prison health service delivery some colleagues, Stuart Kinner and Ed Heffernan, have done some work about mental health service delivery nationally too. Mm-hmm. And so that palliative care in prison, national frameworks going to have to have jurisdictional elements to it because in New South Wales that people have the right to conditional release from prison on the grounds of poor health. And for Aboriginal people, you would just never advocate that it's okay to die in prison from an expected death from Mm -hmm. a chronic health issue. It is not okay to die in an institution away from family. You know, it's all about us returning to country or connections to our kinship and and having our spirit free when we pass on. So that's going to be really complex. It's fascinating. And otherwise, the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare has its um, routine data collections that I've been involved in guiding over the last five years or so. And um, a few colleagues, Aboriginal colleagues, and together we have, I think, helped shape some better questions and also maybe influenced others' understandings as well. But there's also, it's, there's also a long way to go with that too because it doesn't drill down into any of what our jurisdictions might want to ask. Um, it's such a long data collection instrument as it is that it's hard for the states to add, you know, their own. And also it's very actually limited in asking questions from Aboriginal 
health perspective. But yeah. that's what I am working about to begin to work on at the New South Wales level. What questions would we ask to understand Aboriginal people's health and well-being from an Aboriginal perspective? So that'll circle me back to that growth and empowerment measure and working with Jack Bullman and the, bringing that old mad bastards back into our lives. You know, these are the people, if only we could ask those characters in the film, you know. Yeah. Um, but we'll it's a great film. do community sort of <laughs> community-based work to get those questions um, just piloted. Mm. Yeah, that's a real central bit of work. The um, Health of Australia's Prisoners, I think they call the the project. And yeah. I think it must be due for a data collection this year, right? It's every three years. Mm. It is. Yeah, I cite evidence from that all the time in my work. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm just thinking about the West Australian context, um, having done some data collection in WA prisons and in the metro prisons primarily, but a little bit in regional prisons as well. We have people, Aboriginal people from all over the state, from the most diverse range of communities and cities and towns that you could imagine, and mm. even to the point where they're not even, a lot of them, are, you know, English is their third or fourth language. Mm. Mm. So, yeah, I, I can imagine that would be, I mean, you almost need to have a standalone project that just looks at the Aboriginal health side of things because I think it would be quite yeah. hard, hard to shoehorn that into a, a national collection like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And at times there's been a focus, but it's also really sensitive to focus in on Aboriginal people in prison too because of that risk of stereotyping. We're so overrepresented mm. And it's such an expectation that we'll continue to be overrepresented. And our research, according to our ethics guidelines, is to be community driven. And I just think in my world, I know the questions would be, but how do we keep people out of prison in the first Mm -hmm. place? Mm. And just in a context of such scarce funding for research, oh, it's, I'm just so torn. Yeah, do we do that work of community building and nation building and we're advocating for Aboriginal community-controlled health organisations' expertise and a better role for them in the criminal justice system? Like, what if every time an Aboriginal person comes into custody, not only does the Aboriginal legal service get notified, but the Aboriginal community controlled health organisation gets notified, you know, as part Mm. of the custodial notification system. So it's legal support and health support. You know, we'll need funding, we'll need staff training, we'll need all the operations to staff that. At the moment for Aboriginal community controlled health organisations, doing any work in prisons comes at a cost to that organisation. There's no national funding mechanism. There's no mechanism nationally to force the states to bring Aboriginal community-controlled organisations in. And national matters because Aboriginal community-controlled health organisations are nationally funded. They're not coordinated. They don't have the coordinated funding by states. They receive some funding through states, but it's driven by the closing the gap framework and because through Medicare and the PBS. Mm. And as we know, people in prison don't have access to Medicare. They 
can do in some circumstances, but it's minimally used. That's why in reach to prisons comes at a cost to Aboriginal community controlled health organisations, unless they have some specific funding of their own that they use or they can redirect some other funds. But like you said, Craig, this sort of sheer geographical diversity of people means, yeah, also having to take the travel costs and time costs, not just the direct service delivery costs or medicines costs into account as well. But I believe it's possible and it's actually far cheaper than probably running a coronial inquest like for Veronica Nelson, where I was part of a medical conclave of about 12 people and there would have been, there were dozens of um, legal uh, staff involved as well as court staff, as well as coronial staff and mm. the coroner do you know that's hundreds of thousands of dollars not yeah. only that uncostable loss of life for that family too so mm. you know yeah i think yeah we just really need urgent leadership national leadership yeah. and that's where um so. the potential work of the economic side could be really interesting as well to show that the prevention of this would actually save money um, and save lives. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And that is a couple of those justice reinvestment examples where they're able mm-hmm. to demonstrate that. And, you know, in Cowra, there was some great work done um, with the community evidencing what the community would prefer, legal issues the community would prefer to deal with in their community rather than in prison through incarceration of their community members because of the sheer disruption to family lives, family economic viability, which has that impact across generations. Yeah, so justice reinvestment is definitely one part of it. I think sometimes public health professionals and researchers aren't sort of automatically thought of as part of a justice reinvestment team Mm. too. So, Mm. you know, the health health professionals yeah still need to keep savvy about ensuring that we participate yeah Yeah. the area of of alternative justice or different approaches to justice is fascinating to me um you know we were i did a a law and criminology double degree when i was an undergrad and Mm -hmm. things like circle sentencing and, and the curry courts were examples that we were provided with you know and they from what I could tell, they seem to be pretty effective in addressing the the issues that the often it's community members, you know, having issues with other community members, um, and they can usually yeah. resolve them, you know, with a bit of a conversation without really needing a magistrate or someone else to get involved. Um, so yeah, yeah I, I, I don't definitely. know if there's an appetite for that, you know, to be expanded yeah. upon. Well, they just wax and wane. You know, I remember in Queensland, the Murray Court was going really strong. Then there was an evaluation and it was really eroded after that and it wasn't supported. You know, the evaluation, though, I remember, wasn't designed by Aboriginal people. And mm. there, it, you know, there's all that, that's always issues. We just call it erroneous design. 
if it's not doesn't have leadership by Indigenous people, it's, it's invalid. The findings end up being invalid. Mm. Um, so there has to be that ma- match. And I was a research partner of a community justice group in southeast Queensland and used to bring postgrad students there and the elders who presided with the magistrate in, on the Koori Court um, would give a talk and, like, the student assignments would do, be something to, um, you know, contribute, like annotated bibliographies and packages of journal articles got provided and that sort of thing. And that um, elders talked about how they would spend two and a half days a week all up working with families, working with the magistrate, yeah, you know, bumping into people at the supermarket, getting after-hours calls. The office of that organisation didn't have hot running water, had, um, you know, like one or two power points with power cords running everywhere. Um, you know, the toilet block was down out the back. They were just so min- minimally funded they could only afford really shoddy premises. And I remember one day one of the aunties asking these postgrad students, how much do you think we get paid for doing this? And um, and they sort of said, well, the magistrate must get, you know, $1,000 a day probably, so you must be a few hundred dollars. And they said it works out to be about $3.50. Um, and because of being over the two days and it would erode there, there were issues with their pension and um, mm. and they remember <laughs> them saying, but sometimes we get a sandwich. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, you know, we've also got to really, like while we really want to support these initiatives, we've got to also say at what cost do they come to? Do we just have these in place and we grin and bear it because it's better to have them in place and rob our elders of you know, their health, or do we let them fall and create that gap and kind of take a stand and say no, unless these things are resourced properly and respectfully and equitably, then we just can't afford to incur more damage. I just think there's such a strong economic argument for doing it. If you take into account incarceration and costs of um, coronial inquests and, you know, policing costs and all that sort of stuff, if you were to redirect some of just a fraction of that budget to funding that system properly, I think, you know, uh, it would be a fairly easy bit of um, economics work to do, I would think, to to demonstrate the the savings. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Yeah, so... So, yeah, he's hoping, you know, things like that um, report that Nacho has, there's multiple learnings in it, not only the um, underfunding, but also that economics has got a role to play in it, you know, and I've got a nephew studying economics at a major university at the moment and they, um, you know, like I said in that brief bit of coursework I'd been doing, there was nary a mention not only of mob, but of, of actually of equity and the use of economics in mm. achieving equity. It was, mm. and it wasn't necessarily just about profit making, but it was sort of about, um, yeah, just Western systems thinking, I suppose. <laughs> what more can you say? Yeah. yeah. 
But yeah, here's yeah. here's um to all those budding economists come our way. That'd be just <laughs> such a dream to work, um, and we just have to be multidisciplinary. I think, and it's just so stimulating to do that. Yeah, yeah, and I always mm. need a stretch as well. Where am I going to? go, what am I going to continue to sort of be stretched with? And I'd love to learn more about other Indigenous peoples, cultures and processes and experiences too. I've never allowed myself to look beyond, well, Koori country mm-hmm. and my own, you know, culture and obligations. Yeah, so hopefully learn more about other nations in the future. In yeah. unity yeah we're, uh, I'm aware that we're sort of at the end of the time we had booked out for this but is there is there anything else you wanted to cover Megan before we before we finish up no I suppose only just that uh, message that you know we're all on a learning journey and if I was to come over to um, you know Noongar country or wherever I go I I have to learn just the same as everybody else too and it's Mm. actually a real privilege to be able to do that so just yeah keep learning in as many ways as you can and there's no shame in that yeah it's good are we are we expecting you to see you sometime soon on Noongar land well I'd love to give uh my yeah shout out and my deepest gratitude to Uncle Ben Taylor um from Perth and yeah he lives in Perth and the sheer amount of encouragement and love he's shown me and my family over the years and that sense of belonging I have with him and he's yeah in his early 80s now so love to have more time with him I have visited him there um, before and he's come across to Sydney yeah so that'd be a dream yeah Craig Thanks, okay, Courtney. Yeah, thanks for all your time. And yeah, no, it. thanks for joining us. It's been excellent hearing. Yeah, we really appreciate yeah. it. Yeah, as you said, um, a lot of Indigenous people are very busy and taking the time to talk about these kind of issues is important and, we yeah, we really appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks so much yeah. to share, hey, and, and that yeah. first people's first. If you put our mob and our knowledges first, it unfolds all this incredible uh, material and evidence and ways of being and people who can do stuff to then inform mm. mainstream rather than the other way adding us on at the end it just yeah. is just not possible yeah so first people's first and that leadership of aboriginal peoples awesome That was our chat with Professor Megan Williams. I feel like I've learned a lot, but I still have so much more to learn. <laughs> There's so many. Uh, it's it's a multifaceted area, really. Um, but, yeah, really, really enjoyed that conversation with Megan. She's got so much knowledge and, yeah, and very interesting person. Yeah. Definitely. Um, I've, I've been lucky enough to see Megan talk at conferences and whatnot in the past and she's she always takes a really thoughtful kind of um, calm approach to talking through, her, you know, the background 
to an issue, the cultural issues, uh, and really providing a lot of context. Um, and I think it's, you know, I've always really appreciated that and it's given me a greater understanding of Aboriginal culture and the related challenges they face and where they're coming from, you know, with, you know, when they, when they make certain comments and, and that sort of thing. Um, and yeah, it's really great that we, we were able to get her on the podcast because she's definitely in demand. Yeah, definitely. And it'll be pretty, um, yeah, her year would be like packed out, wouldn't it? Should be so busy with so many fingers everywhere and different areas. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah. She's, she's a, a really active, um, you know, productive researcher and really committed to to solving some of the issues that her community faces. And I think, yeah, it was, it was great to to have a bit of a chat with her. And we didn't really scratch the surface. Uh, I think we could have probably gone for another hour easily. So that might be something in the future we re- oh, revisit. Oh, easily. And, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I, I'm I'm keen to follow her on Twitter now. I, uh, I will do that as soon as we end this podcast. <laughs> yeah. No, she, yeah, she, she's, a, she's a great person to follow on Twitter and really across mm. issues and really encapsulates things succinctly, you know, really gets to the, the core of a, of a, a problem that are, might arise. Yeah, uh, interesting. Yeah. Any, yeah, so with this, you, you may be hearing this during NADOT week or you may be hearing it a bit before. We'll just see how we go. Um I believe that we do yeah, have absolutely. plans. And, uh, yeah, we have plans to invite some more Indigenous people onto the podcast. Is that right? Yeah, so I'm I'm actually hoping, uh, again, this is not something I've talked to you, Craig, about before, but, uh, you know, Explosive. now's a good time to introduce it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, I've been planning secretly uh, a couple of other episodes with people that work in Indigenous areas or are Indigenous themselves. Um, so we should hopefully have a series of three to uh, three podcasts to talk about Indigenous health to really highlight all of the different challenges that um, our Indigenous people face and what's it like in research and things like that. So we do, I do have a couple of people that I'm talking to at the moment and I'm still figuring out what times and days we can talk to them. Yeah, okay, excellent. Well, we'll look forward to hopefully bringing people those chats as well. Um, but yeah, if people want to get in touch with us, Courtney, uh, people can email us at meaningofhealth at outlook dot com, uh, and they can also contact us on Twitter at health means what. So we would love to start any conversations with people. Let us know if you've got feedback or comments, or want us to talk about different topics, or you yourself think you'd be a great guest to have on our show. Let us know. We'd always love to have a chat. Yeah, excellent. All right. Well, thanks once again, Courtney, and uh, thanks to everyone listening. And we'll be hopefully Thank back you. in your, your feed before too long with a, a, a new episode. See you then. The Meaning of Health podcast is produced with the support of the Education Enhancement Unit and the School of Population and Global Health at the University of Western Australia. The podcast is produced by Craig Cumming and Courtney Webber with editing, mixing and additional music by Craig Cumming.